You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you, the DU Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. We have some exciting news for you today. It is late on the in the afternoon of September 12th, and those of you that have been paying attention already will have probably seen some press releases about uh, USDA APHIS having revised their import ban on hunter-harvested game birds coming into the United States. That's a big deal for all waterfowl hunters, especially those that are going into, into Canada or wanting to come back. It really thrown a wrench into a lot of people's plans, and it's great to have this news, and we are here to talk about it. Uh, and helping me with this conversation here is our very own Dr. Karen Waldrop, our Chief Conservation Officer. Karen, great to have you here. Oh, thank you for having me. This is great news to get to talk about. It's great news. This is a type of sort of breaking news and uh, current content that we like to bring. And so I want to back up just a little bit for as a, a bit of context here. Uh, waterfowl hunters and a lot of our audience will have been keenly aware that that on September 2nd, uh, I guess a day into the waterfowl hunting season up there, USDA issued this restriction on uh, basically disallowing harvested waterfowl from coming or game birds of any type from coming back into the U.S. as a result of concern for the spread of highly pathogenic avian influenza. We talked earlier in the summer with Dr. Dave Stalneck about avian influenza and the role that waterfowl play in it. And so we've kind of covered that in the past. But that was sort of, that was what was happening is that there was a lot of discussion about what kind of restrictions needed to be put in place. And then lo and behold, USDA comes out with this import ban and that got everybody's attention and certainly got the attention of a lot of our members, a lot of our waterfowl hunters. Um, And as we kind of went forward here, Ducks Unlimited sought an opportunity to engage in that conversation, and we were fortunate in being able to do so. And you know, so we're going to – I guess the first thing to do here is to cover what these revised restrictions are. came out earlier today in a press release by the USDA. And so, Karen, why don't you kind of give us an update – what what can waterfowl hunters do now with with regard to bringing birds back into the U.S.? Yeah, well, first I'd like to thank um, USDA APHIS and their staff for sitting down and and being willing to talk to us and discuss the the science behind this, 
what are some opportunities to maybe change this ban, this full-out ban, to something to where hunters can bring their birds back, their harvest back into the states. So I, I want to thank uh, the senior leadership and also the staff that uh, sat down and worked with us um, on, on some of this and some of the information that we were able to provide to them to help uh, inform their decision going forward. So the the ban now, it, the restrictions, I should, I should say, are that for any bird, um, the viscera, head, neck, feet, and skin, and one wing have to be removed. Okay, so can't have any feathers but the one wing. Um, and that's, of course, because it's required by U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. To have a wing To have a wing, right? They require that the carcass must be rinsed in fresh, clean water prior to packaging, and it can't have any visible evidence of contamination. So no dirt, no blood, no feces or anything like that on the animal, so well cleaned. And then the carcass has to be imported in a leak-proof plastic packaging and stored in a leak-proof cooler or container during transport and import. Um, And then, of course, the carcass would need to be chilled or frozen during transport, which we would, of course, want anyway. So it can be either chilled or frozen. Um, So it allows essentially to have, you know, your breast meat, your legs can be attached, um, breast and breastplate have to be attached. And again, one wing is is what will be allowed to come in. There's a lot that we'll. There's a lot that we could cover in this little discussion. We're going to try to keep this episode here real, uh, fairly brief. But one of the other things, though, in this in the press release that that USDA put out, I guess it's called a stakeholder alert. Uh, that there's some additional recommendations from them on how to clean your boots, care for your boots, and there's a lot of additional information out there on on you know, like safe handling procedures for avian influenza and kind of going forward, we're going to have somebody else on to talk about that. Uh, But as I'm looking at these new restrictions, that's typically the way that I I bring my birds back in in a way that matches the restrictions that are in place. And and I'm pretty sure that's going to be the case with with a lot of other people as well. There's only a certain number of things that you can't do with the birds now, I guess, in terms of, of how they would be back be brought back. So this is a great development. And and what we want to talk about here is, I guess, Ducks Unlimited's involvement in this. Karen, you and I were directly involved in mm-hmm. some of these discussions. It occupied the majority of our week last, <laughs> last week oh, trying yes. to work through this. Um, <laughs> kind of going back to that initial release with, uh, with, well, before we do that, is there anything else that we need to cover here with regard to the restriction other than to say, it's like where people can find information about it. Obviously, there's Ducks Unlimited. You can go to our website and find information about our from our press release, which talks about the these new restrictions. But it also provides a link to the USDA stakeholder yes. alert, where you can get word for word these exact restrictions. Um, but you know, I guess for the hunter, the average hunter that's going to Canada and thinking about bringing back birds, in my mind. And I guess that's the other thing I'll say is that we do plan on having a video out there Mm -hmm. showing people if they have any doubt about what is acceptable. Uh, But in my mind, I think about the way I typically bring my birds back, which is just the breast meat on the breastplate with a wing or or I I typically would bring back both wings. But in this case, you have to take one of them off because they're trying to reduce the amount of kind of external body feathers, I guess. So, for the most part, this looks like something that is 
uh, pretty consistent with the way the majority of folks are going to be would have brought their birds back anyway. Yeah, and and this doesn't. So there's the the uh, highly the HPAI zones or the restricted zones. This does not apply. Like there's not certain rules for if you're in the zone or not in the zone. This is just Canada. To keep it very simple, this is just the rule for anywhere in Canada. So it doesn't matter if you're from a, in a restricted zone or not. You can still bring them back with these with this method. And that restricted zone that you're talking about is something that came up in conversations leading up to this Correct. ban because that those res- primary control zones, I think, is what they were yeah. called by by the uh, Canada's equivalent of USDA or something of that nature. Their health uh, their their health safety agency. I forget exactly what it's called, but they had established some of these primary control zones related to the detection of avian influenza in in their poultry facilities. Mm-hmm. And early on, that was the language that we thought was going to apply to hunter-harvested birds. But then it turns it out that they, 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 <laughs> they decided differently. Um, so, yeah, that's a great point to illustrate, to, to bring out there is that those, those control zones, restricted zones that one, people might have heard about are no longer in play here. Right. So if you go to Canada, harvest a bird, you can bring it back if you meet these, these type of, of restrictions. So that's great news. I know a lot of people, well, unfortunately, unfortunately, some people had to cancel their trips or had to leave birds behind. Mm-hmm. So this doesn't, this doesn't satisfy everybody, okay. right? There's, there's some people that had to leave birds behind and probably some people that have already canceled their trips. I know some people were certainly thinking about that, but we're still only about a week or so into the into the hunting season. So hopefully this salvages the majority of those trips Plans. that people were going to be taking to to Canada. Um, so, I, I, yeah, I guess kind of moving on here in the conversation, I want to talk about our involvement in this mm-hmm. and when Ducks Unlimited got involved. When this initial ban was, was announced, it got people's attention. Uh, Ducks Unlimited issued a letter uh, I think on Saturday, this was like right, it was Labor Day weekend. It was at 4.30 or so on, or even after 5 o'clock on that Friday of Labor Day weekend. So. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure that it it caused for some chaos <laughs> during the weekend of, of a lot Dead. of people within our, within our organizations and a lot of our partner organizations. And we submitted a letter and indicating our opposition, strong opposition to this ban and encouraging USDA APHIS to to make decisions based on scientific information. And we did not at the time see any kind of scientific rationale for the extreme length that they were going to for that uh, with that ban. And I know that was shared by a lot of people. So what happened from that point, Karen? What can you tell us about how we were able to get in the conversation and, and help them yeah. rethink some of what was going on? Yeah, and I think from talking to staff, you know, they've obviously received a lot of phone calls from from hunters, from organizations uh, that were very concerned about this. I know that the state agencies and the Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies had been working with USDA APHIS on this, um, and we had been getting information from them. Again, like you mentioned, up until a couple of days prior, it looked like, okay, we're going to have certain restrictions and everything, and then, boom, all of a sudden, nope, nothing at all. And so that's when you know, everybody kind of ramped up their calls and concerns. And so we were able to, you know, based on our letter and, and um, you know, different relationships, talk to senior leadership with, with USDA APHIS. Um, and after having conversations with them, they thought that the points that Ducks Unlimited, there were several of us on, on that initial meeting, 
um, thought we brought up some very good points and some rationale, common sense. And they're like, well, why don't you guys talk to um, put us with some of their staff, right? So some of the staff that were on the some ground. Some of their senior level scientists, senior leaders, right? Yeah, all their senior level scientists. So we could sit down and go through everything with them. And it was really neat because like the first meeting was with the senior leader, um, the senior leadership of the the scientists. It was scheduled for what, 30 minutes? It was, yeah, 20 and minutes. 20 minutes maybe, yeah. I think it was only 20 minutes. And they stayed on with us for over an hour and a half. And when it came to the end of the first one, they're like, hey, look, this is important to us too. So if you guys are good, we'll stay on. And and a real willingness to sit down and listen um, and be heard was was very refreshing to be yeah. able to be heard on some of this. That was certainly a key takeaway for me is, is the interest on USDA's part of learning about what information we could bring to the discussion. Mm-hmm. It was pretty clear early on that we had access to some information that they didn't. One That's of the right. things that we tried to do, and the, you know, we've all seen everyone's immediate response to this about what are they thinking? Don't they know these birds are going to be migrating and all that kind of stuff? And I think we started, we tried to think of it from inside the mindset that exactly. they were looking at it. You know, they have an agency mandate to protect the borders of this country from from um, from contaminants, from invasive species, from anything that may harm the security of our of our food chain, of our food supply chain, of all the agribusiness that we have, that's their mandate. And it's it's a necessary one. And so that's kind of where they start looking at these kind of issues. and and I think it's it was important for us to try to come to grips with that, you know, is to appreciate their perspective on this. And bring to them some data that could help put this, help, help kind of contextualize the risk as I as I described it. And what we ended up doing is bringing some data on waterfowl harvest and waterfowl hunters with respect to what happens in Canada and try to frame that in the context of all the other waterfowl harvest that occurs. And I think that got their attention. I remember the very, at the start of the conversation, we were talking about risk and we were talking about this is a really small risk. And one of their lead scientists said, well, that may be, that may be true, but we don't have any data to inform that on. And so I guess on one hand, it's refreshing that you hear USDA APHIS start talking about, we would need some data in order to modify our, our, our restriction and we haven't conducted a risk assessment yet, didn't have the data. And so we spoke up, said, well, actually, we do have some data. And yeah. That data came in the form of harvest data, right? And that got their attention and that caused us to kind of go down a more productive, well, I shouldn't say more productive, but a productive path sure. of trying to figure out what this looks like. And then we even brought in some some partners on the epidemiology side, right? Mm-hmm. Yep, with the Southeastern Cooperative Wildlife Disease Study. They had some uh, research and some unpublished data that they shared with us and, and sent to us so that we could then put it into a proposal and share it with APHIS. And, um, you know, everything you said was exactly right. It was like we had two different perspectives. We were like, well, but these birds fly. And they're like, we understand that. Yeah. But they have certain regulations they were even telling us about. I think one was put in 2014. And, um, and that kind of required them, that kind of set to where – it didn't matter any other modes of transport. They had certain rules and regulations that had to be followed as far as the transport of of harvested um, waterfowl, but also poultry and anything else that could come into the United States. And those were the regulations and laws that they had to follow. Mm-hmm. Right? That was within their purview. But in the presence of new information that we were able to provide to them in this proposal, they were able to reconsider those those regulations, those rules, and, and offer a different um, – restriction for the importation. 
And, and again, a lot of credit to USDA and their staff for fielding the questions that we were asking. One of the things that everyone, like the two things that most quickly came to people's mind when they saw this, this restriction, the, the previous ban, uh, that were familiar with the issue, they said, wait, but these birds migrate. And the other is, but wait, we've been through this before. What changed the previous time we went through that? Mm-hmm. They were very willing to entertain those questions and talk about them and, and tell us what had changed. And one, as you mentioned, was a new regulation that was on the book that kind of changed the way that they were looking at at this issue with, with regard to importing birds that have a have a realistically high potential, or I, should, I don't know if it's a high potential, but realistically have a potential to be a carrier of, of HPAI. Um, so yes, that yep. credit much credit to them for having those conversations, answering the questions that we wanted answered before we could kind of move into this part of the conversation where we talked about risk and trying to quantify it, and then also trying to come up with um, with ways in which birds could be treated, could be handled, and uh, so that when they do come back into the into the U.S. We could demonstrate through some data that, that we've minimized that that transmission risk, right? And that was really what they asked us for. They're like, if you can come up with something, help us, you know, come up with some kind of a restriction or a rule that would, we can show a decrease in risk by doing that. That yeah. was exactly it. It's like whatever the risk is now, we need to show that these measures will decrease that risk. And so that's kind of where they were like, okay, removing the head. Right? A lot of the viral load can be found in the brain. Yep, that's so from the public, pr- published from, and unpublished right, published data. data. We know that. So we know that. Um, same with the feathers because, you know, some that, that can be t- contained in the skin. It can be contained in the feather. So we were able to reduce all of those risks and being able to show that regardless of, again, we know that they migrate. And they did understand that. It took us a while to move past that and go into the physical moving of of harvested animals or, or games. So. Yeah. Yeah. Also the intestines, the organs. Yeah. That's another place as far as, so that comes with the removing all of the internal organs and everything else because that is where the highest viral load is. So what they ended up coming with is this part of the proposal, they saw this as removing as much risk as possible and still making it feasible to bring to bring birds into the United States. Yeah. And we were able to, we were able to advise them on what's realistic. That's the other thing that we yes. talked about is like, what's, this has to be realistic from a hunter standpoint. Right. And we were able to, you and I were able to speak to that personally and to their credit, they were asking us, is this, is this doable? Is this, how much of an inconvenience is this going to be? What about freezing? Let's talk through that. And I think in the current regulation, it says it must be chilled or frozen, right. but it's not, it, it doesn't have, it doesn't say it has to be frozen. It just could be chilled or frozen. So they were willing to talk through that. We wanted, we, yeah. they were really willing to in, accommodate as much flexibility around these levels of mitigation as, as possible. So appreciated that. And one thing I wanted to point out too um, in, in the conversation is the legs can be attached as well. So, and I don't see that. It doesn't say that they can't be, but in here it doesn't say they can be, but they, the legs can be attached, um, just can't be the feet. Okay. And I thought it was very interesting. They even said, well, we understand that, you know, hunters, they may want to bring that back because they don't want to get rid of some of their, their meat. They want to bring back all of their meat. They understand the ethics of, of hunters want to be able to eat their meat, the harvested birds. So yeah. that was good. The other thing that I, that I want to say, uh, is that 
it, it was very obvious that they were getting the message of how important this issue was mm-hmm. from hunters, uh, from from people that hunters were contacting. They got it. They understood that this was an important issue. I thought it also interesting and a bit reassuring that they were very careful, or not very careful, very eager eager to let us know that this was not an anti-hunting agenda. They yes. had gotten that message and that accusation, and they were without us prompting. We didn't mention anything of that, but they volunteered that and wanted us to know that's not what's going on here. Correct. Yep. And so, you know, I guess I guess that is one thing that we might talk a little about. Well, the first thing is let, let's do spend some time on high path avian influenza. You know, the one thing that I would have liked to have that I thought about asking at the outset, but of course I didn't. It's like, okay, if you wanted to get people's attention about the, the seriousness of high path avian influ- influenza, you succeeded. You did it. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> and, and we we knew and know it's a serious issue for the commercial and backyard poultry uh, industry and, uh, and and even just, just your normal backyard poultry mm-hmm. facilities. And so we knew that was going to be an issue. We know it, that it's a very serious issue uh, for those those facilities. And so we saw this as an opportunity to kind of help educate hunters about that, uh, help educate hunters a little bit more, given the role that waterfowl play, known the known role that waterfowl play in this disease it's important for us to do our part to help educate hunters on this because, you know, we can move beyond the conversation about whether a restriction on bringing birds mm-hmm. back into the U.S. 630,000 waterfowl on average are harvested in the, in Canada by, by U.S. hunters. You know, we can talk about whether that's meaningful or not. But given the tens of millions of waterfowl that are going to be flying into the U.S. and the 10 to 12 to 15 million harvested waterfowl that are going to, that's going to occur in the U.S. this year, it does behoove us to talk a bit about the role that waterfowl hunters can play in mitigating the risk of spreading HPAI um, through, through the activities that we have because we're a group that's out there interacting with these birds and interacting with those habitats, which is where the virus does occur. Uh, and it's a uh, how much did they tell us that they spent last time? It's a billion dollars, over a billion dollars. USDA spent over a billion dollars last time this happened, trying to you know, with their biosecurity measures. They've already spent a half a billion dollars this year or in this current outbreak, and that's they probably feel like they're just getting started. So this is a very real issue for USDA APHIS. It's a very real issue for commercial poultry operators, for backyard poultry owners. Mm-hmm. It's a very real issue for our food supply, eggs. When we, talk, when we see prices of chicken go up in the grocery store, turkeys, we're approaching Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. eggs, there's a direct correlation between the, some of the things that, that are happening in that, uh, in that industry and those prices. And mm-hmm. avian influenza is one of those. So as we went through this conversation, we realized that Ducks Unlimited has, a, has an opportunity to play an important role and our hunters do as well. And yeah, and they asked us if we could help with that, right? With the education, you know, as part of as part of sitting down and talking, and that was also an important part for them is that we help to put out some of this information, share some of their information that they have through social media, through this podcast, through other other venues, so that um, hunters can be aware and could potentially help with some of that. Because you know, in wild birds that are infected with HPAI, a lot of times they they can not show symptoms. Mm-hmm. So when you're cleaning a bird and everything, it looks completely healthy. 
if you've got a backyard flock or if you work at a poultry facility, you know, there's been a lot of biosecurity measures that have been put in at some of the poultry facilities to make sure, you know, they not bring mm-hmm. it in. But you can bring stuff back on your boots and other ways coming back. And so I think it's important that we that we do educate ourselves and hunters as much as we can about the importance of this so we can help mitigate it. Yeah. And you'll hear more of more about that from us and you'll see more about that on our websites and our social media. And we're going to have some of the experts, just the same as we did earlier this summer, we're going to have some experts in avian influenza come and talk to us about those guidelines, both from that, uh, that risk mitigation for the poultry facilities, mm-hmm. but also... We're going to get another update on any new understanding on risk to humans, risk to our pets, to our retrievers, any of that. We're going to have somebody back on to talk about that to kind of fill out some of the the rest of this conversation. I guess we'll move on here and talk. I think we have a few other things we want to talk about here. You know, a lot of folks are wondering, why did this even happen? You referenced earlier that everyone in the, in the hunting community – waterfowl conservation organizations, we weren't sitting back not paying attention. Mm-hmm. Conversations were ongoing and had been ongoing for quite some time. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Who was involved in that? I think AFWA might have yeah. been. Who else? Sure. So the Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies, and I know, um, of course, Ducks Unlimited and several other organizations were sitting down and talking about it. Um, our policy team had been had been talking with people as well. I mean, again, the state agencies, um, a lot of them were, were concerned and were calling up, especially some of those that uh, were live, that live closer to the Canadian border, and they have a lot of their hunters are going back and forth to, to Canada, uh, traveling quite readily. So a lot of folks were, were calling, and, and hunters, I mean, hunters were sending in uh, emails and, and sending in concerns and Facebook posts and trying to get attention brought to this. Yeah. And and it worked, and, and it it worked in getting people's attention and communicating. And I think it was a. And I think whenever we first learned that a change was likely, I think I think the response from USDA APHIS or the 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 comments that they provided to you were also encouraging. They were complimentary of the mm-hmm. way that that we approach this, right? Yeah, they really were. They were very. Um, thankful that we we're willing to sit down. In fact, they were like, you know, this is a great example of how um, government organization and and um, interest groups can work together through something. Uh, they were very encouraged by that. Yeah. The other question that a lot of people are going to have, so we'll at least address it, is, well, is this new restriction even going to make any difference? Mm-hmm. Still, tens of millions of waterfowl right. coming across. We understand that. We realized early on it wasn't about that. It was about respecting the way their agency was viewing this issue and us trying to find a way to help us reach a mutually agreeable solution. Yep. And federal rules, and they were putting they they were putting on the table. Look, we are, as you mentioned at the very beginning, our responsibility is to protect these poultry, the poultry industry, and these poultry farms. So we've. In the absence of data that tells us otherwise, we've got to be the most conservative we can be, which is an all-out ban. That was why it was so important that we work so fast and so hard to make sure that we provide that data, those data for them, to be able to make an informed decision um, to help kind of change these restrictions and make them a little more lenient. Karen, what were our key takeaways from this? It was it was incredibly educational from my perspective. It was. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got a lot from this and will remember this as a, it was a busy week. I'll certainly it was. Remember, but it was very rewarding to, 
to be representing all the people that that make a that helped make a difference. But what were some of the key takeaways? So as you mentioned just a few minutes ago, people speaking up, that made a difference. Sending those letters, calling us, sending, you know, whatever the mode of speaking up about it, that did make a difference. Um, and because they were listening and they were getting calls and emails and, and they wanted to work with us. Um, also, the fact that data from hunters made it possible to characterize the risk. When you told them in our in one of our meetings that... Um, we do have some hunter harvested data that will help let you know how small of a percentage of the birds harvested by U.S. hunters each year actually come from Canada and the 96, 97% that are harvested in the United States, right? And that's maybe a focus that they need to be looking at and as far as talking with us. Um, and so that made the difference right there as far as, well, that was the first thing they it, perked up their interest of, okay, you guys have information. And it was Hunter Harvested data that helped that. So Hunter's made a difference. When you see someone pause to write Mm -hmm. something down, you know you've got their attention. And as I was was summarizing those data before the call, it it was very real to me that the data that I am using right here to try to influence this very significant policy change came from hunters that participated mm-hmm. in our harvest information program, HIP, that have participated in the parts collection survey, that have participated in the hunter diary survey, and then on the Canadian on the Canadian side, hunters that have participated in their surveys. We were exactly. able to characterize some very significant percentages only because hunters participated in the surveys. So if you ever contributed to those, you made a difference in this. Yes. Harvest Information Program. We should have a we should have a podcast on that. I would love to. I think to we I think we have several. <laughs> <laughs> we can never have too many, it seems. No, no, that is, I mean, it was uh it was wonderful to see those data being used like that. Yeah. Um so congratulations to all of those hunters. And then, you know, I also I think Avis deserves credit for coming and being willing and seeking us out too, welcoming the discussion and the input from us and, and multiple times. Um uh, reaching out, asking for other bits of information. So I think that's um, that's very important to point out. And I think you also mentioned that HPAI, it is a real issue. Um, it, it really, truly is. And waterfowl hunters can help play a role to help mitigate in, in several ways. Thank you for all that, Karen. And in that last, in the vein of that last item, there will be more guidance coming in the form of podcasts, websites, social media. I encourage people to to stay tuned for that. Do we know how long this restriction's going to be in place? No, I guess until they have any other information that would have them change it differently. So um, We received no indication that it was temporary or no. anything like that. So we expect this to be in place through the remainder of the hunting season. Oh, right, yes. right now, that's our expectation. Yes, we have no 100%. reason to believe otherwise. Correct. Okay. Anything else we need to cover? I mean, it's a pretty exciting episode, exciting yeah. information to be able to bring to people. No, I think uh, I think this was wonderful, and I'm, I'm glad we're able to uh, bring this good news on a, on a Monday afternoon. Absolutely. Thank you, Karen, for joining us here. Thank you for everything that you did in this conversation. Thank you to all of our, our staff, all of our policy team. Uh, thank you to all of our partners. You and I were getting getting calls from from numerous partners and at the state at the state level and and other conservation organizations wanting wanting to help, wanting to uh, wanting to know how how things were going. Thanks to each of those organizations and all of those people for what they did in this conversation. 
Big thanks to USDA APHIS for being willing to have a conversation and being willing to listen to data and put something in place that we can we can stand behind. It still still may not be perfect perfect in the eyes of a waterfowl hunter. That's right. But we got to a mutually agreeable solution, and that's what we saw. That's right. I mean, this was definitely a group effort. It was. And many people. How about before we close this out, we we go through these restrictions one more time, and I'm just going to read them off here. Again, encourage you to go to the Ducks Unlimited website to get this, to get get the specifics, and then follow the link to the USDA APHIS stakeholder alert. But here are the restrictions. Viscera, head, neck, feet, skin, and one wing have been removed. Feathers have been removed. We're talking about the body, body feathers here, with the exception of one wing as required by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service for species identification. Carcasses must be rinsed in fresh, clean, potable water prior to packaging and must not have visible evidence of contamination with dirt, blood, or feces. And carcasses must be imported in leak-proof plastic packaging and stored in a leak-proof cooler or container during transport and import. And carcasses must be chilled or frozen during transport and import. Thank you, Karen. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Very special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Dr. Karen Waltrip, Ducks Unlimited's Chief Conservation Officer. We appreciate all that she does for this organization. As always, we thank our producer, Chris Isaac, for the terrific job he does with these episodes. And to you, the listener, we thank you for your time. We thank you for spending with us here on the Ducks Unlimited podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And visit www.ducks.org slash dupodcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. Stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com.